0: Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. Malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves, away from the guilty.
1: Hello everyone, today I'm joined by Ben and Eric from the podcast for a new American century, where they're busy doing a deep geopolitical dive into all things 9-11. I would recommend this as one of the best ongoing efforts to uncover the truth of that day. As we're approaching the quarter-way mark of this American century, I invited them on to discuss how they think this modern incarnation of imperialism is going. I begin by asking what took them down this particular rabbit hole, and here's Eric starting us off with his answer.
0: Well, Ben and I found ourselves meeting on the internet, as, uh, as Ben said we all do nowadays, and we were... In a, uh, a mutual chat room, kind of discussing with other people parapolitical events, we were both, I think at the time, uh, I guess for myself, I was relatively new to discussing and starting to read about more parapolitical events, um, starting out with your your big hits JFK and um, 9-11, I guess, really, and... I I think we were just very interested in um, reading more about um, the intelligence failures that happened before 9-11. Ben found Kevin Fenton's book, Disconnecting the Dots, and he started reading that and posting about that, and I started getting really interested in that as well. Um, And before you know it, I had, you know, a a stack of books (laughs) in... in, um, in my house that made my wife start asking Mm. weird questions. (laughs) And um, uh, we were just talking about a way to kind of organize that information and start sharing that information. And Ben mentioned that he had this idea that he wanted to do a podcast just to like get the information out. And at that point, I think Ben probably knew a lot more about the specifics than I did. And, uh, the original pitch of the show would be, I kind of, (laughs) I sort of just sit there and ask Ben questions in, in a, a way to prompt out Ben, um, sharing information that he wanted to share and uh i tried to do from- the solo podcast thing at first
2: and um that there were maybe two early attempts that just went right into the delete mm-hmm. because um <laughs> i full respect to people like adam that can do that kind of stuff adam fitzgerald like that can do that kind of stuff for me it is absolutely impossible and just makes me feel like i am a crazy person um, it's actually really funny, Richard, that we're talking because um, it was Darkened Hour. That was basically the, like, the direct inspiration right. for, for us starting this show. Um, mm-hmm. I basically found that one day, burned through the back catalog within, I don't know, a week and um, became so <laughs> frustrated that there was nothing else like um, that was covering that kind of content that you know, I'm a deeply stubborn person. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll just make my own show. We'll, we'll just do it that way. And um, yeah, Eric started off as being the person that I could just bounce things off of and not feel like a lunatic. And um, it's just so good at research that like it quickly became a, a, a level playing field and we've been well, going over. Can I since. ask you,
1: was there a red-pilling moment for either of you? Because Kevin Fenton and Disconnecting the Dots, that's a pretty good place to start, but it's a difficult place to start, actually. That's a, a detailed yeah. Yeah. book. I think I put it down. We spent almost a year trying yeah, to get Yeah, I, <laughs> I put it down on my first attempt and didn't pick it up again for probably a number of years until doing the, the series of Adam. But what I have this theory which i annoy adam with the because adam hates the the fantastical conspiracy theories particularly no plane hits the pending that yeah. really winds up i've got a bunch right. of fake profiles on facebook where i post that stuff to him just to just to wind up <laughs> now he knows now he's got he's got five different versions yeah. of you blocks yeah. you and five different realities blocks so but what i have this thing that's kind of a convey about with 9-11 stuff that a lot of people doing really interesting stuff started out in a kind of it's something yeah. quite fringe catches their eye at some point that that could be a kind of crazy JFK theory it could be the the towers are brought down by laser beams or the no plane pentagon thing or whatever but there's often a fringe thing so did either of you have that where there was something fringe that caught your eye or, or were you in at uh, entering into this at a reasonably sort of centrist sensible place to be engaging no, I, I, def-
0: I do. Do you want to go Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go right. ahead, Ben. By all means. No, go I was going
1: to ask you to go first.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm uh I'm not too proud to admit that I certainly started at a more uh fringe fringe place in, in particular 9/11. I think the thing that caught my interest first, that really piqued me was the the story about how the passport was found outside of World Trade Center mm-hmm. 1 and Classic. Yeah, and then when I learned that uh, apparently there had been some collaboration between, I kind of forget now because it's been so long since I've read anything about it. Um, I, I think it was between Carlisle and a Japanese mining company that had a patent on nanothermite technology oh, for, the purposes, of, uh, for the purposes of um, mining. Uh, and uh, a patent that had been taken out in, I believe, 1996 and then expired in like 2012 or 11 or something like that. Uh, I, I think when I heard about that, I, I decided that I wanted to read more about 9-11. <laughs>
2: uh for me you know it's actually really funny i i was 13 when 9 11 happened Um, i'm in my my early 30s now and growing up as like a teen um i was actually a big time debunker i loved like history channel debunk like conspiracy theory kind of stuff um you know those kind of like recreations shows that would always have like the really smug popular Mm -hmm. science guys on talking about like why this that and the other thing like all must just be conspiracy nonsense and um, I always had kind of an interest in that. Like I would love this for your Zoomer listeners was pre-on-demand days when you just kind of had to settle for what was on television. And um, I always like really liked the conspiracy stuff while never taking it seriously. Um, I have a very vivid memory of um, going to Ground Zero 2003, 2004. And there were some of the like control demolition people like handing out leaflets like uh, around like the site and just like having this feeling of just actually really disgust and like revulsion at like, and these people were not making a scene or anything, like they weren't saying anything, just handing out like pamphlets about, you know, like Eric said, <laughs> microthermite and stuff like that. So I was not really in the pocket for that kind of stuff growing up necessarily. But like what really actually got me on board originally, and we've done a whole episode about this, Eric and I, um, were all the financial crimes. Um, the insider trading that, you know, was acknowledged but was never really included in like the 9-11 commission or anything like that because there were no direct ties at the uh, time to Al-Qaeda. And that's like the first sort of conspiracy thing that I ever came across that there was not, you know, the the popular science debunk for. And, you know, once you kind of like, see that one of those things is true, it's like, well, what other threads can we pull here? And then you start kind of going through a lot of this conspiracy stuff, wanting to sort of see, you know, that it's all kind of just jokey and whatever. And then like, well, that inconsistency seems weird. And that one seems weird. And I think it was 2019 um, podcast, True and On did like their, you know, big blowout series about 9-11 stuff. And I don't support everything that's in that, personally but um yeah just kind of getting that sort of the inconsistencies that kind of like open your eyes to sort of the more broad you know
1: fringe narrative i suppose right yeah that's another way i hear now that i think about it that people start off debunking as kind of a mental exercise or because they think it's a moral thing to do and then they're going along with that and there's you know, they're sure there's plenty you can debunk about 9-11 and all this deep political stuff but then they hit something they're being honest oh, definitely so you yeah. can't debunk so it does seem to have merit in it it suddenly seems like the debunkers around them maybe aren't playing with, with the fairest hand here and, and they're, they're caught in their own kind of illusions and that so that's how james corbett um got started now i think about it he, he was having fun debunking nonsense 9-11 videos one weekend when when google videos was just a thing and then until the point he couldn't debunk them anymore and, and then he became the Corbett report so yeah that's it it's <laughs> then you go start asking the questions mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you debunk yourself into yeah. a corner
2: basically at that point
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I, I mean I started off with the the fringes as fringe I read a David Ike book just before 9 11 so I'm reading about the shape-shifting oh, reptile, hell yeah and, like a, and <laughs> hell I thought
2: yeah, it was brother. just a well,
1: this is an interesting <laughs> mental exercise you know like the the can you construct a completely different vision of the world and history and everything and does it stand up or does it just collapse instantly you know i'm, I'm assuming it does i'm assuming you know, i won't get like a quarter of the way through the book before this is all all gone and i'm i'm having so okay that was ridiculous uh, but then
2: we want to do for halloween this year the the sk Bain um the most 9/11, dangerous SMS book in the world book. yeah exactly yes. and how it was all satanic mass ritual and uh, for the same reason where a lot of that stuff is fun because you want to see you know what other worldview you can come up with out of you know the same objective events um that kind of stuff for me is much more amusing than it is um serious i would say (laughs) yeah
0: yeah i would definitely agree because i think um richard i probably started alongside or along the lines that you did a little bit more coming at it from while this is insane, um, uh, can I keep reading until uh, the com- the argument completely mm. falls apart? Um, that that definitely just sort of tickled my brain. I guess I'm a bit more of a um, contradictory person. I-, I love playing devil's advocate. So when I see a lot of like debunking videos, I'm like, yeah, right. Like, certainly you can pr- like debunk the debunker, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah doing the the sk bane uh for halloween seems like a very fun idea especially because i think it opens with uh the the beams of the world trade center as pitchforks meaning uh
1: satanic ritual uh, i'm not familiar (laughs) with this i'll I'll just say i think with the the David I think, I think it was the sensible stuff that draw drew me in and seemed actually like far more radical to me. So the suggestion the CIA traffics drugs, for example, like, get out of here. Come on. Right. I've seen all sorts of TV shows. There, the CIA were always the good guys, right? They're out catching the drug. Yeah. And then you yeah, find yeah. out, and even things like we'd done about fluoride in the water supply and how there was a debate between people who wanted it, and didn't want it. But never was it mentioned, there was actually, mm-hmm. you know, reasonable body of evidence to suggest it was toxic. So David have brought up all these facts that you would find in lots of like more respectable places if you like so but i think it definitely um it definitely influenced the way i saw it on the day that i saw because of the whole occult angle in ike's work i saw oh it's this some kind of magical ritual taking place i don't know don't know what i'm looking at anymore and yeah that that was but what, what's the uh, escape i'm I'm sorry to be i don't know i don't know where what what is the sk bane uh, ritual idea that you're talking about
0: oh ben do you want to take that um
2: have you read more of it than I have at this point? I mean, the the general idea is that um nine eleven was basically staged by global elites as a um as a satanic mass ritual and that um by studying like numerology and astrology and like all these kind of more esoteric data points, um, you know, you can uncover this conspiracy. And then doesn't the back half of the book then try to like predict that there will be like a nuclear terrorist attack like in Arizona like yeah, Christmas he, of
0: He did 2000- yeah, 2012, I think he did predict like 9/11 2.0 would happen, and I I think it's 2012. I haven't read all of the book. I've only read little bits of it here and there. Um, but obviously that did not come true. And then I think he wrote even uh an an addendum to it explaining why that wasn't true. In very good, almost Which respect. I, mean. I know, yeah. It, <laughs> in very good, almost cult like fashion, I believe he just uh boils it down to no, no, no. We got the date wrong. It'll happen here. You know.
2: <laughs> it's a lot of that dave mcgowan style like numerology hitler's birthday always seems to come up um, people love talking they about do sources. that is 20th of april or
0: something. Um, i'm about. not, a not a big
1: sp- day <laughs> yeah. yeah it is 20th yep. of april, yeah i can't yeah. i can't Mom's not birthday. find that stuff a little bit mom. fascinating like you say for for a halloween episode kind of thing I, i've been to talk to people with, there's a, a conspiracy theorist he wouldn't accept that term but you know crane uh, in in the uk who would switch between geopolitical one yeah. minute, and then the next slide would come up and if we look at the numerology of this event it's like what <laughs> just and there is that, that <laughs> you're to cover
2: all your bases i mean you know in case like a memo comes up later showing that the intelligence part is wrong if you got yeah Satan in your back
0: pocket yeah absolutely you know? yeah exactly you, you can always fall back on alistair crowley if you if you're in a corner <laughs> for
1: me i found mike rupert's work then and that was that book came out in about 2003 or something from uh, Crossing the Rubicon. And yeah, yeah like a 600-page book. And at that point, I was quite young. And I thought, wow, 600-page book. I've never, never seen a 600-page book other than the Bible. I mean, like, if I read this, I'm going to be a real <laughs> expert on 9-11. You know, well, not quite that simple. But right. um, and that, was, that was an impressive work at the time. And I, I don't remember so many people back then talking about the controlled demolitions of the buildings. Probably because you don't have google video or youtube or anything so you can talk about it but you, you can't see building seven It was probably years after the event i actually saw building seven collapse so at that time it, that wasn't the center stage that it later became so and i recall mike actually suggesting not to go down to too technical an avenue because he, he saw how expert evidence just would cancel itself out in court you'd have one expert say one thing and it so it
2: always does i mean that's the reason why we have such a strict no Towers policy no control demolition policy on the show is because like i'm not going to speak for eric but i am i'm incredibly stupid (laughs) and especially when you get into engineering science um physics anything like that like yeah the expert evidence just cancels itself out you're i'm not going to be convinced either way because like i just am not smart enough to understand any of that yeah Um, we're very big on sticking with what we know which is mostly the, uh, the geopolitical history of the movies.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I would agree with that 100%. I, I just, I, I can't say one way or another. I, I took, I got a, a B minus in physics in high school and that's about as far as my uh,
1: engineering career could have ever hoped to go. Yeah, I got a total <laughs> fail, which I thought qualified me to interview David Chandler. So I gave it a go. And, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> what I tend to say about it. I, you guys did a good job on that. Do you think so? I, thank you. Yeah. I, well,
0: I thought that episode I was thought, fantastic. I tried, I, like, we
1: got to mention it's your most probably, popular one, is Yeah. So uh-huh. my my attitude was me going around saying, "Yeah, it was controlled demolition, man." Building seven. I wouldn't take me seriously if I was stuck in an elevator with me saying that. What? What? What, what why do I know about it? But what I can say is, and I, you might find this, or you might have already found it, if you're interviewing people, you get to know who bullshitters are, right? Because there's people who will talk very, very loudly on the internet about all the things they can prove mm-hmm. about everything. And then if you ask them to debate or send some difficult questions their way, uh, then suddenly they disappear. And they have all sorts of reasons yeah. to disappear. And this is pretty consistent. And what I found of David was whatever I sent him, he was completely happy to answer it. He was completely open to debating anyone. A lot of the people who were criticizing him suddenly disappeared uh, when, when that was put to them as an option. Uh, and that's what I can say. I can say that in contrast to a lot of other 9-11 theories, like the, the no planes or holographic planes or, or whatever, you have some very serious heavyweight intelligent people on the controlled demolition side. Now, I can't say more than that, but I think mm-hmm. in a sense that's more powerful than me ranting and raving about how there were bombs on pillar 47 or whatever it is. Right,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, support beam. Is it like, yeah, I think it's 47, 47, like 51, whatever. Yeah, I think it's 47. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would agree with that a wholeheartedly. Like, we wouldn't, I, I think... You know, Speaking for Ben, uh, we would love to have David Chandler on because he's someone who I think uh, is so well-informed, obviously very smart individual, um, maybe a little unable to check his own bias if I could just give any sort of criticism. But he is obviously intelligent, obviously has a lot to say, but uh, I wouldn't have any way really to push back on him because i don't yeah. know you know yeah
1: and i think what i tried to do in that interview was get him to talk about his background because he's just the guy with the big beard who appears and talks about physics on, on the documentaries that's all <laughs> people know about it but the fact that he was an anti-war activist oh, in the he 80s was like and he was helping here. refugees out when reagan was bombing nicaragua that i think that gives a kind of context to places or the thoughts inside which i quite enjoyed getting to understand that part yeah. of david yeah Absolutely. So what would you say that your objective is in coming into the podcast? Is it, in, in putting all this work into it, are you trying to understand 9-11 in a wider geopolitical context and understand where the world has gone from there in this apparently new American century? What, what's your aspiration with it?
0: <laughs> uh, ben,
1: do you I want to go first? Part yeah. Of
2: our, yeah, I think one of the motivating factors in both starting the show and, like, especially when we get into the more hard history stuff, like these sorts of timelines that we put together. Um, like The thing about 9-11 and the whole extended 9-11 universe, the road to and, and from 9-11, I suppose, um, it's just it's very dense. It's very difficult to follow. And like, while at the center of it is one of the most spectacular, you know, media spectacles of you know the 20th century so far, probably. Um, like a lot of it is very confusing, and at times it's very boring and difficult to follow. And there are a million different names and a million different acronyms and organizations. And you know, a lot of it is not easy to find. Um, it's out there. You can find it if you know you spend just the a minimum of time reading books and you know knowing where to look. But um, you know, an easy digestible way to sort of synthesize and like you know follow this kind of information doesn't really exist. Um, like I mentioned earlier, that's what I liked so much about Adam Show is that like things would be focused on these specific topics, and you could get these sort of deep dives into these, you know, these histories and who these people are and like what was motivating them. And like wanting just to have that in a package that was easy to to digest, I think was one of our big
0: motivating factors in starting on us. Mm-hmm. For me personally, it was I learn best by explaining to somebody. Um, that's how I found that I kind of synthesize information the best. So the show for me was really an opportunity, which is why I was so excited when Ben asked me to be a part of it, or you know, kind of pitched the idea to me. Um, it was an opportunity to better understand. The world that I live in, um, you know, I, I live in Texas, uh, I had very normy, I would probably call neoliberal politics um, until I was probably, I don't know, 26, 27. And um, starting to learn more and read more about the geop- geopolitics, particularly surrounding 9-11, um, amongst other parapolitical events in American history and world history. um, And then talking about them or even just writing about them on twitter.com helped me uh, better understand what I was reading and what I was starting to learn. And it it
1: helped me form my
0: own opinions about the world that I live in and see every day. Yeah.
1: I I mean, I totally get that. And it'd be the one big reason I'd recommend for anyone to consider doing a podcast or writing or anything is I notice my own understanding goes up so much and it surprises me because I'll read something and I think I understand it but then when you have to explain it you just find all these gaps it's like hey <laughs> one, how did that connect to-? And and so that yeah that's a
2: how does the saying go where it's, like, if you uh, if you can't explain something to, like, a, a four-year-old child and you don't really understand it? Like, it, it, being able to, like, put it in terms so simple that, like, mm. even a child can, like, follow what you're trying to explain is, like, yeah. how you can really prove that you've mastered yeah. something.
0: Right, right, yeah. Like, can you give a 15-second elevator pitch, you know?
2: I have a six-year-old half-sister. I've never had her listen to PNAC, so we'll see how that can (laughs) bear out eventually. But
1: I don't want to get Child Protective Services involved in the meantime. You could probably (laughs) record her listening to it and make a podcast out of that, actually. I think people would be interested to... She'd be our
2: guest for a 9-11 episode.
1: There we go. (laughs) The next generation. Yeah, but the show really... uh, Yeah,
0: being able to understand and explain what I'm thinking about anything and being able to defend an opinion, because that's another thing is you can understand something and explain something, but then you might be talking about it to a friend who isn't steeped in uh, deep politics or parapolitics or even history or whatever, um, who might just say, well, how do you know that? I've had that. I I remember when I first started really reading about stuff like this, I I told a friend, oh my God, the CIA killed JFK. I know it. I know it and they they just said, "Well, how do you know that?" and I I couldn't respond. This was several years ago, but I couldn't follow up. I I I realized that I had maybe listened to a few podcast episodes and read a few articles um, and scrolled on Twitter and I, I, I couldn't defend what I was saying at all. And so uh, something about that interaction really drove me to want to have fully formed opinions and arguments and be able to back up whatever I was going to say uh, with actual fact and um, sources and, uh, you know, um, yeah, I, I guess actual uh, solid material. And
2: I can't speak to Eric's, like, personal experience. Like, I, I know his biography decently well at this point, but, like, I'm not sure on an exact timeline. But for myself, at least, Richard, I find that, like, an interesting pivot point. And I, I've talked to other friends of mine um, about this kind of topic, and they seem to have similar experiences, that it, for a lot of people in our kind of age demographic, you know, late 20s, early 30s, um, the 2016 election, I think, kind of pushed a lot of people into the sort of, having this kind of renewed interest in the parapolitical and in you know this kind of like you know quote unquote secret Mm -hmm. history almost of both the united states and the rest of the world um you know i think that a lot of people up until that point you know we were young when we had the kind of whole reckless horror of the of the bush administration but we had eight years of obama kind of bringing everyone back to brunch as it were and then you know with both like the the hillary trump choice that like a lot of people like really resented having to make i know myself and eric both did um and then you know the the just outright clown show of, of the four years of trump that followed that you know plus covid you know i think it, it it quickly eroded a lot of trust that even like folks like us were willing to give the government at the time Um, you know, we obviously had to process, you know, stuff like the Iraq war and the rest of the criminality of the Bush administration, but, you know, it at least still felt like the government, like, could be, could be trusted in in, in a certain light. And then, you know, getting pushed more and more down these kinds of holes. And I was the same way, like JFK was something that I was always obsessed with as a little kid. And then growing up, like, I also was kind of getting back into that around 2016, 2017. And then, you know, you just keep falling down these rabbit holes. And the way that all of this history works is that there's always another another branch another node another another crime done in a different country in a different decade that mm. you can you can keep learning about i was actually go.
1: completely credulous to the jfk thing when i was kids i'd see pop culture references to it but i assumed well, obviously that can't be true right because <laughs> the whole machinery of the us media would come grinding to a halt and they would never be able to have another election again until this was resolved if there was mm-hmm. even a shred of evidence <laughs> for this so oh you sweet summer child that i was <laughs> yes <laughs> mm-hmm. but i think with um i think for me 9-11 and and probably my generation not, you, you do see a lot of people kind of my age who through 9-11 and then the egregious nature the in-your-face nature of the iraq war where it was so obvious the justifications were flimsy that that caused the faith in the state to crack apart in a way that growing up through the 90s well, we had George Bush launch the first invasion of Iraq, but that seemed like some kind of humanitarian gesture to save this poor little country of Kuwait. And then there was a whole... Saddam gas the Kurds. Yeah, I and mean... there was the whole, like... Uh... <laughs> do you remember the throwing the babies out of the incubators? Exactly, Come exactly. On. And then the Yugoslav thing. See, yeah. again, humanitarian intervention. Okay, I can understand why they do yep. these things. Hey, someone had a bomb yeah. in the
2: Chinese embassy. I mean...
1: Yeah. <laughs> what a terrible coincidence. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there was this, like, cracking of... of um, Faith in in the state for these, and it's interesting how like then Trump, the Trump era becomes another one of those points where you kind of I don't know, like the Wizard of Oz, you see behind the curtain, you say, oh right, yeah, it's not what you yeah, think exactly. it is. It's not what you think it is. So on a, if we always put a spectrum down with uh, like your 9/11 as a mass ritual to bring about the new world order at one end of that spectrum, and at the other end, George Bush is telling exactly the truth, and it's exactly what he said. At the other end of that spectrum, there's all these possibilities now do you feel in your research you've narrowed it down to one particular strand of thought uh, that 9-11 and geopolitics fix into or do you feel you're operating over a range of possibilities like maybe some people do plan for a new world order to, to to come about or maybe it kind of does more happen by accident but the structures are such that they guarantee we constantly live in this warfare state that's constantly re Or what, what do you do you feel a narrowness there or kind of pluralism as to the possibilities
0: i think definitely a pluralism um and i think the more that i research and learn the more i think that it's a pluralism <laughs> the the more that i learn the less i mm. feel i know uh yeah. <laughs> I I think at, I think when I was very naive and hadn't read a single thing, I had a very definitive idea of what I thought happened. And then the more I read, the more I realize that I've just broken down all of my preconceived notions about anything that could be possible. And there's definitely been stages in which I thought, Oh it's George Tenet. It's George- look at look at what Dick Clark said. It's George Tenet, it, it's Richard Blee, it, it's Tom Wilshire. They did it. And then it's oh wait no actually George Tenet was getting stonewalled by Condoleezza Rice oh wait no George Tenet and Condoleezza Rice were getting stonewalled along with the FBI by Michael Hayden um uh, l- look at what Kurt Weldon had to say look at uh you know you just keep on finding or peeling back layers and uh there there is no clear cut answer and i've had other people ask me this question you know dm the show account on twitter and and ask me um okay real talk what (laughs) happened what's What's the unified unified
2: theory of 9-11 what's
0: what happened and every time i just have to reluctantly say i'm i'm only going to disappoint you because i i i can only say that i don't know you know, I can't. I can't give a theory of what happened. I can tell you maybe a very large picture of what I think happened, and I think that if I had to boil it down, it was a lot of people acting in self-interest, um, a lot of people taking advantage of a moment, and um, mm-hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, I still do kind of believe that it it was more or less. Um, something of a i won't say necessity but really a, a, an end goal of 60 plus years of american foreign policy post world war 1 um that that brought us to 911 it it was an an eventual an eventuality i suppose i could say inevitability mm. after a while yeah. um yeah, i yeah, agree yeah, with
2: yeah. eric i don't have like a unified theory of 911 i think like eric the the further the more and more we do this the less and less of the possibility of me ever having one kind of slips away mm-hmm. um we we explicitly started doing this show as a way to i think more than anything assign out blame um because i think in a story like this um blame definitely goes in degrees
0: mm-hmm.
2: um i think we hold people to kind of like this legal standard of like you know accessory to murder basically you know like at least in the United States for like us plebs, you know, if you know that someone is gonna murder someone and you do nothing to stop it, like there is like a degree of like responsibility. Um, And obviously we don't see any of this with the 9-11 story. You know, there are people in the CIA, there's people in the FBI, there's people in the NSA, there's people in the Bush administration, all of whom could have done something to stop it and and chose not to. At the end of the day, I think that the plot itself was Al-Qaeda, you know, I think that they were definitely enabled by, you know, other entities be it you know people in the cia or people in the saudi government saudi intelligence what have you but i mean we know that it was al-qaeda um you know we know because they had a uh, there's a clear through line you can draw from 93 world trade center bombing through bojinka through the millennium plots and the like the bombings in east africa like there's such a clear history line that if you're willing to follow it and, and actually learn all of this stuff um, for me, that's one of the most certain things: is that you know there were these hijackers; they were you know working for Al Qaeda. They may have you know been working for other people too at the same time. We don't know yet. Um, but like there is that, you know, you can't just ignore that 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 part of the history because then you end up losing so much of it. But then at the same time, you know, if if you can assign out that blame, if you can say you know the CIA knew about it and didn't do this, you know, Mossad knew about it and you know we're following for so long and, and chose to do nothing on their side. Okay, well clearly they didn't do it necessarily, but you know if your fingerprints are all over it it's not a good luck right
1: yeah i think that's the most solid ground to stand on i remember hearing john gold interviewing paul thompson of the terror timeline one time and paul thompson mm-hmm. made this point of like well, look there might have been intention within the cia within the nsa within the administration but i can't prove that but i can prove criminal negligence and that will open the the doors to all sorts of other things then but um, you can have that exactly solid exactly
2: and Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we've been spending most of the, the existence of the show doing the disconnecting the dots mm-hmm. story, the CIA, you know, hiding information about Al-Hazmi and al um, two of the, the hijackers that were on the flight that went to the Pentagon. And, you know, they entered the United States in January of 2000. And for, you know, uh, almost two years, they're, they're operating in the United States. And at so many different opportunities, the FBI or other law enforcement have easy opportunities to roll these guys up. They're obviously Al-Qaeda. They're not stupid necessarily, but they don't exactly have a, a strong handle on tradecraft and like how to how to not be, you know, they were living in, at, at a certain point in San Diego, like with their names in the phone book. Yeah. These guys were not exactly like yeah. super
0: spies. They were living and, with an FBI informant. <laughs> with the an FBI informant the with their names.
1: Al-Qaeda's central hub from... Yeah, which are yes, going to that, like that say exactly. the yemen number upnumbered appeared in in trials um i think in egypt and it had actually been published in the observer mm-hmm. newspaper i think in 1999 from from the top of my head and mm-hmm. nobody in al-qaeda yep. realized that their their number of their central hub was like, being monitored in the public domain so obviously <laughs> being monitored and then uh, it's um Khalid isn't he? he's calling about his wife who's pregnant back in in yemen so yeah Yemen. yeah, yeah. There, there is, I mean, that's a theme that, that runs through to speak up on that. Like, I read some books on Irish terrorism, the IRA, for comparison, and looking at the kind of security details they have there. So, for example, if they suspect someone might be informing, they'll get military uniforms, set up a roadblock, stop them, and, and pretend to be like British soldiers, like the, the UDF. Yeah, yeah they, so they respond. Take them out yeah. put a gun to the head and say, You're, you, you, Paddy Scorn, we're going to shoot you here because you're like if you're an ira guy and if they say no 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 i'm with you lads then they get shot so i mean you imagine yourself in that situation (laughs) you don't know what to do right that is a pretty hard security test to fail but by contrast um al-qaeda security even going back to imad salem the guy the egyptian guy who infiltrated the uh, cell in 1993 that ultimately bombed the world trade center his wife answered the phone one day to the the wrong phone the phone the his like well, pre-Al Qaeda, the what well, I guess what could be would become Al-Qaeda, his buddies called him on and just said, Oh, Emad's out with his FBI friends at the moment, he'll get back to you. <laughs> and and he got away with that, right? <laughs> he, he they they he went down and he managed to BS his way out of that. And they said, Oh, okay, yeah
2: yeah i mean one of my favorite stories about that was all these years you know the cia was like oh we couldn't get people in al-qaeda hmm. it was too hard to get operatives in al-qaeda you know we always think that this is maybe why um you know a Ahmed were getting protected is because they were trying to flip guys so they could finally get sources in al-qaeda meanwhile johnny walker lynn the american who you know ends up going to america and, and wanders into a training camp to join the taliban because he thought it was based because he spent too much time online yeah you know <laughs> he shows up at one of these afghan training camps he knows about 9 11 within what a week week and a half like. Yep this information was not difficult to come by like a lot of like the reason why cia didn't have people over there is because no one wanted to live in a cave (laughs) they all wanted those cushy diplomatic jobs and and didn't want to have to rough it and and pretend like they were i think this is the right uh, question
1: that i've never got a satisfactory answer to like i was involved in the initial interview with uh, mark rossini with adam we didn't put that one out but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is what i asked was well mark would say it's it's much more difficult to infiltrate al-qaeda than it is the ira say but if you look at comparisons it doesn't See, I... seem to be and if you read books by no. the danish guy Morten storm who infiltrated <laughs> or amon dean the british guy then there may be mm-hmm. falsifications in those biographies but essentially they're, they're walking in and within a week they're meeting all the top men and the Sam bin laden and, and all sorts and they're getting face-to-face meetings with the yeah with Bin yep. Laden these low-level yep.
2: guys. There was the uh, and I'm I'm blanking out his name, but there was that guy that you had interviewed that wrote the book about um the hijackers who said the same thing that there was no vetting process a lot of time yeah Ter- Ter- Terry guys. McDermott that's yeah how, it's why Zia Terry McDermott thank you that's why Zia Jara and how the fact that like every other person in his extended family has some kind of a tie to Mossad. Like, didn't seem to bother Al-Qaeda too much besides for the fact that they would always keep him so isolated from the rest of the folks.
0: Right. And you see kind of echoes of that. Um, I was actually just listening to your and Adam's episode on uh, Zacharias Mm Musawi recently. And uh, at one point, you bring up uh, the story in Crossing the Rubicon, actually, about how Michael Rupert describes the process through which FBI could get a warrant. Um, obviously in uh, comparison to the FISA warrant that Harry Samet was unable to obtain, and how you say that there are FBI higher-ups who will claim, oh, getting a warrant is a nightmare, absolute nightmare of a bureaucratic process, and then Michael Rupert says, no way. The FBI, they're just a bunch of cowboys. They can do whatever they want. And uh, these sort of conflicting stories are all over, and and you have this complete lack of um as as uh, ben said uh, uh security throughout al-qaeda and how there are definitely just white dudes who spent way too much time in chat rooms in the 90s who flew to afghanistan and walked into a camp and were having sit-downs with bin laden and hearing about plans for 9-11 within like 10 days and uh, then couple that with cofer black and uh, um uh, People like George Tenet at, at CIA saying, oh, well, we couldn't infiltrate Al Qaeda. Like, it, it's impossible. No one can get over there. Um, and then Robert, um, uh, Director Muller um, of the FBI saying that, uh, that we had no prior knowledge because they were pristine in their tradecraft. They made no yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, brother, what are you talking about? Three of them got pulled over with warrants out for their arrests. Like, at, at some point, I think this is where you can start to see like their, uh, the official narrative really uh, has a lot of faults in it and uh, picking at those faults and trying to see how many times does something like that happen? How many times were a hijacker pulled over for a speeding ticket and uh, they had a warrant out for their arrest in another state, and and nothing happened to them. Why did that happen multiple times? Uh, compare that to Tim McVeigh, who got pulled over for not having a license plate, and all of a sudden, within twelve hours, he was fingered for the lone bombing of the uh, Alfred P. Murrah Building in nineteen ninety five. Um, well, he was
2: speeding with no plates away from the the explosion of the Murrah Federal Building, too. Yeah, by the way. okay, to, to be
0: <laughs> sure, that's fair, but um. Uh, but still, there it, it just seems like there's so many inconsistencies, and uh, they they don't match the official narrative. And uh, uh, picking at that is is always very interesting to me, I guess. And that's why,
2: I'm and I'm sure you've heard Adam like go off about this a million times. But that's why to us, like the official narrative matters so much, and why we spend so much time talking and going through like all of the official narrative because. You know it's very easy and I think this is like the most seductive I'm not I don't consider myself a conspiracy guy I'm always considered myself a history guy first Mm -hmm. and like I think part of the reason why is because it's so seductive to get sucked into that kind of conspiracy culture where every single major historical event has like these crazy alternate explanations and like everything basically just becomes telling stories back and forth but you don't really have like it's the difference between knowing things and, Mm -hmm. and believing things right and like if you just spend any amount of time going through like the official story like all of the lies and cover-ups like tend to make themselves they're so self-evident a lot of the time that like you don't need to entertain yourself with you know the, the more spectacular stuff because there's already so much there to begin with right i mean like i t- we talked earlier about the the episode that we did on the insider trading and the financial crimes And that's all stuff that is not in, not disputed in the slightest. It just wasn't considered relevant to the overall investigation. You know, there were no links to Al Qaeda, but you start going down that rabbit hole and, you know, it's not just, you know, a couple puts on some, some airlines a few weeks before, like there's stuff around reinsurance companies, there's stuff around travel, there's stuff around cruise companies. Um, you know, there's all these different webs that you can, you can, you can follow from there and it's the same with the intelligence. It's the same with like, even if you want to follow the official story, well, like I was talking about earlier, then you have to really understand like the 93 trade center bombing and you have to understand like all of al-qaeda throughout the 90s because and, and you know it's a very materialist way of looking at things but we're a materialist show you know 9-11 and and all the things before and after don't happen in a vacuum you know it's all part of a much larger much more complicated story yeah and you know to, the official story is you know it was an unknown note we had a failure of imagination there was no way that we could have ever seen something like this coming and you know you spend two seconds even going through the official story and you know that's a lie
0: like yeah <laughs> come on i mean footnote 44 is right there
2: people (laughs) you can read the 28 pages i mean (laughs) they're redacted but they're not hard to read through those redactions
1: no (laughs) no absolutely and i I do think that's for me the 93 bombing was probably the most revealing thing i ever learned about 9-11 because you can see it all there how they're bringing in uh, the blind Sheikh omar abdul rachman and he's receiving protection from the cia perhaps for numerous reasons to remain in new york and and you can see with the assassination of maya kahani how it's covered up to protect these guys and yep. it's all yeah, mm-hmm. it's really like a little microcosm for nine eleven itself right yeah
0: absolutely and then i mean uh, that's where you can start to make yourself insane too you read more and more about it it's like wait a second ali muhammad trained at fort Oh, Bag. no. Look, not, the,
2: not the Ali Muhammad stuff,
0: please. No. Is, my, my, my psyche can't handle yeah. that. Wait, they had, they had manuals from Fort Bragg? What? A what? What, Drupal agent? Like what? Yeah. Where, you know, there's, there's so Roman many layers Drupal to Ali Muhammad. Yeah. And that's not even to get into like the fr- stuff where they're back in the 70s with Abu Nidal and what um, the author uh, Patrick Seale had to write about him that basically uh, there were a, a bunch of PLA guys who thought that he was uh, – almost certainly a Mossad agent because it's the only way that they could explain his behavior. Um, Oh, this but. is the problem
2: we have with this stuff, is we always try to pick a start date and then it always winds up getting pushed back another decade because, you know, you can't explain this unless you understand yeah. Egypt from the 1960s on, but that doesn't even help if you don't know for Saudi Arabia from the 1930s. Yeah, well, like, that's, what about, uh, yeah, exactly. that's what I liked about <laughs> there's, David
1: Icke. He starts all his books at the creation of the universe and then moves on from there, so you can go very we very Go for Atlantis and the Moria and right Ranger. From... Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Exactly. And...
0: You have to, you have to. Unless you're going to talk about um, Saeed Kutup listening to Baby It's Cold Outside in the 50s, then I don't want to hear what you have to say about (laughs) 9-11.
2: The thing is, if you watch Saeed Kutup in those old uh, videos, the way his eyes blink, it does seem like he might have that kind of reptile thing going on um, with the... (laughs) That, I, see, I don't know enough. That's about this a good person.
0: point. That's a very good <laughs> point. Thank you for bringing. See, no one is talking about this. No one's talking about how Saeed Kutup was definitely a lizard person.
1: Okay, there, there's your Halloween. Special. See, Richard, we came on with track. Yes, yeah,
0: I'm so... <laughs> I'm so sorry, Richard. <laughs>
1: and okay, so podcast of the New American Century project for the New American Century. What are your thoughts on that document and how the New American Century has played out as we've gone through the wars and into into the COVID era?
2: Well, as an American, Richard, I would say great. Living here is even better. I have zero complaints.
0: The good guys won. Um, yeah, yeah, no. Um, I mean, I, I, it does kind of get at the crux of what we talk about so much. Um, everything in that document, I well, won, maybe not everything, but um, uh, basically everything that they wanted happened. Like 9-11 was the best day of these guys' lives. If you think about it, that's a, a very, um, I suppose, gross way of looking at it, but it, it's true to an effect. Like 9-11 was the best day of Dick Cheney's life. It was the best day of Donald Rumsfeld's life. It was the best day of Richard Pearl's life. It meant that they got mm. everything they wanted. So at the end of the day, what whether or not they did it, does it matter so much? Because they were celebrating deep down inside. I have to do, like, a lot of first and second
2: dates, unfortunately, where, like, it comes up that I do a podcast and then people get excited because they think I do, like, a My Favorite Murder <laughs> kind of thing. And then it, I have to <laughs> inevitably respond by being, no, it's a show about 9 But, like, when I have to, like, try to explain to people why this means, so, like, why I care so much about this stuff in the first place... Um, you know, the reality is for Eric and I, as Americans, you know, the, the state of emergency that was declared on September 14th um, after 9 11 had happened, you know, that has been reauthorized by every president since W. Bush. Obama reauthorized it, um, Trump, and now Biden. Um, we still live under the Patriot Act. Um, all of our, you know, rights have been basically temporarily suspended. Um, you know, there's a direct for line. Yeah, i mean there's a direct line from you know protesters in portland being black bagged and and dragged off in suvs a few years back during the george floyd protests and and you know the the law of land in the patriot act um you know all stuff by the way that was written out in secret um you know after continuity of government gets triggered by basically an all republican shadow government in a uh underground military base out in what was it virginia or maryland uh, um we're gonna do continuity of government one day and that's its own incredible yeah. rabbit hole to fall down yeah
0: yeah, I think it predominantly took place in, like, uh, it was site R, wasn't it? Which is in yeah, Maryland. It,
2: and then news of that only ended up leaking because um, some Democrat, top-level Democrat complained to the media directly that the, the shadow government that was formed was all Republican.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <gonna> be- <laughs> Which says a lot that he was only complaining that he wasn't included. <laughs> yeah, just
1: There you go. American politics in one in one sentence. Yeah. Exactly. 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean i think it's interesting i'm with, with regard to looking at the underpinning of this i'm doing a, a series on my podcast like that, called the energy of empire and energy is in a sense to cop out word because it's a way of saying i don't really know what's driving empire but you see this imperial energy rise mm. up and you can go as far back as you want i try and jump in at the 1890s because it's when the u.s expands overseas but you see mm. yeah, you, you see dark, like a wave yeah. like a, it's like a wave the 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 material water isn't moving but there's an energy moving through it and that's what i think you see with with pnac and all the rest of it there's there's some kind of imperial consciousness underpinning this that picks up different actors along the way so it'll pick up dick cheney and donald rumsfeld at one moment and it'll pick up joe biden for a different kind of crisis 20 years later but the Mm -hmm. empire is the thing that marches on it's a 9-11 was a great gift to empire as was as was covid and in, in different forms of different Absolutely. ways of different propaganda covering it. But the the new American century, mm-hmm. which will probably stop being an American century at some point, it will probably be whatever's coming after that, whether it is some more kind of globalized institutions when the US dollar collapses as well, presuming this is all going to happen. Um, it, it'll take some other form and, and just as individual actors are jettisoned, whole nation states get jettisoned at some point. They have a transition between Britain and the United States and it'll become something else. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is the underpinning thing that's rolling on through
2: if the cc if the ccp want to pay us to start uh podcast for the new chinese century i will start taking mandarin lessons today i can i can tell you that much
0: yeah absolutely it, it's you know maybe 20k a month maybe that's that's all that's not so much they can afford it <laughs> and, and pay for my duolingo right 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 yeah exactly they can cancel the rest of my student debt and uh we'll be good to go but um, to answer your question, Richard, I think the the podcast that
2: Eric and I first like kind of met because we were both fans of is um, Death is Just Around the Corner, Michael S. Judge's very excellent podcast about American derangement. And um, on that show, he's very fond of talking about a, a kind of historical theory of his that he refers to as the Fourth Reich, um, you know, this idea that as World War II was going on, you had direct American collaboration, like with the Nazis. We have Operation Mm -hmm. Paperclip after the war ends. Not only that, though, but you have all the deals that get struck with the real kind of villains of history, your Reinhard Galens and your Otto Skorzenis. And, you know, you end up setting up after the war ends, you know, this kind of anti-communist network that goes throughout the world. You know, in his his eyes, World War III is 1945 to 1991, where you have this battle between communism and and anti-communism basically everywhere besides the United States and Russia. And Mm -hmm. what that usually ends with in a lot of those countries is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not you know, in cases like Indonesia, millions of people you know, being wiped out either through war or through genocide or this, that and the other thing. But I think what's at the heart of that, I can't speak for Eric here, but at least in my opinion, I think the real heart of that at the end of the day is capitalism. Like, I think that, you know, with what you see in that kind of fascist movement is this idea of basically privatizing the entire state, kind of taking over financial control of everything. Um, you know, using that to, to loot it for for the elite, and then trampling on on everyone else just to, to you know satisfy the the bloodlust that that gets created, and, and whipping up that kind of especially fervent nationalism. Um, and you know, after the war ends, you know, you see that all of this comes back to the United States, and you know, all of the horror that we we love getting into um, from you know the the '40s onwards. And like, I think we're kind of in the death throes now of that empire. Um, I, I don't know how it's gonna go from here. I'm not, not very not optimistic that's for sure but mm-hmm. I think I think at this point you know resources keep dwindling, and it's more and more you know these competing nation states that are are trying to get get on top of the pile while, while they're getting still good
0: yeah exactly I would definitely agree with that I think um Ben and I both uh i would say boil it down to that issue of it, it is the the expansion of empire comes down to the necessity of the expansion of capitalism. Um, at, at its, at its core, capitalism is, uh, constantly expanding. And in order to do that, you have to constantly be at war. You have to constantly be at proxy war. And uh, Richard, you said that like, maybe in, in the future, it won't be America. It will, it will collapse. I think that will only happen, um, at the expense of the deaths of every single proxy country that we, uh, fight Russia or China through. Um America will only collapse whenever Ukrainian is dead. Uh America will only collapse when every uh third world civilian is, is dead in service to American Empire and in service to American corporate interests. Um and uh fighting that,
2: Russia to the last Ukrainian will start fighting China to the last Taiwanese person. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah.
1: Thanks, that um, yeah. No, I think you're correct. It's uh <laughs> I mean you can see yeah. it with the um, no, yeah. with the, the famine situations that have been present over the past. Couple of years, we're we're going to lock down in these countries and Western countries and unfortunately that and dump a lot of food and and all the rest. But the immediate result of that is starvation in Africa and India, and no one cared about that. now that was never part of it at no, all. No. It's going to be far worse, I would suggest, in the in the coming future. And again, it... I mean, even. Even
0: right now, how many civilians have died uh, in Tigray, and how many civilians have died in Ukraine? And we only care about one. I think it's been like a, a few, almost half a million civilians have died throughout Ethiopia, and um, two thousand civilians have died in Ukraine. And we we only care about the white ones, you know.
2: To his credit, Brandon's also cut down the airstrikes that have been happening in Yemen, but like we are still backing a a saudi genocide against the houthis in in yemen and uh, we haven't brought up israel a whole lot but um, we still are more than happy to sit by and and fund and support what's going on there
1: yeah Uh, yeah what's your feel from walking around where you live in the united states you know you're going on dates and the podcast comes up or anywhere else to the level of political consciousness that's out there because i think certainly sitting on the other side of the pond we get a very depressing image of this and i did find the covid situation depressing in that, after spending you know over a decade looking at these geopolitical issues and 9-11 and being very cynical of the state i recognize that i was in a total bubble because i think we always like to imagine that people around us might have some of this kind of going on yeah Feel the same And then way. If I, yep. everyone <laughs> is cheering on the stage in every measure completely completely uncynically without a thought without a care in the world just lock down take the vaccine and that's all great and so but i think we have emerged out of that with more cynicism more people being cynical off the state but it feels i think a few years ago i received that i was part of a revolutionary movement where particularly with streaming video okay because it was very hard to learn about stuff uh, prior to being able to download audio and mm-hmm. video from the internet is you reading articles or whatever mm-hmm. and of course like reading a book is, is probably the best way to get uh, information but to get just into the ballpark a documentary or something is very helpful and you can obviously consume a lot of information from them so when streaming video
0: our show wouldn't well, exactly, exist yeah. so
1: when it came <laughs> online i was thinking <laughs> yeah. about my god if this was around when i was like 18 and 9 11 happened that would have been a revolution because all the kids are going to be sat at school like watching documentaries and you know even if it's alex jones or whatever they'll be getting in the ballpark and then then they're going to have questions that just won't go away and that didn't happen at all. It's like there was there was reason for that optimism, but it seemed to peak at some point. It's like this is gonna be interesting to 10 to 15% of the population. Maybe I'm being optimistic there. And that's it. That is that yeah. it, you are maxed out and the rest of them are just plugged into the red team or the blue team. So what am I being pessimistic? What's your feel from your interactions in life?
0: Um, I would say maybe I don't get out as much as Ben does. Um I, I'm married and <laughs> tend to just sort of uh, sit in my backyard. Um, <laughs> but uh I, I do think that there is a growing sense of cynicism um, amongst more, uh, you could call them normie friends or people that I interact with. You can certainly reach people, I think, with the kind of stuff we talk about. Absolutely. I think, um, shockingly, more people are willing to listen to what I have to say. I think um, maybe five years ago, if I had said um, I was doing a 9-11 podcast, I think I would have gotten a lot more pushback or a lot more... um, uh, Odd looks from friends and you know work colleagues, but now I feel that uh, I get a lot of like, oh wow, cool. What do you have to say? Right. You know, there is a little bit more of that um, for sure. Uh, along with that, I think it's a bit of a double edged sword because I think you have a lot of people that are cynical, have a lot of political energy, but are naive and misplace it. I guess you could say. Um, I think a hefty amount, or a healthy amount of skepticism, is is good. But I think that it's starting to get to the point where, at least in my own view, I think people might be so uh, willing to or wanting to accept any kind of cynical viewpoint that they're led astray. Mm um, by a, a lot of different places and it, it, it's, you know, no fault of their own, but I, I, I see a lot of, um, for the, you know, lack of a better term, just very dumb takes on things that are, aren't well thought out. And, um, maybe it's just me, uh, being frustrated because I've spent so much time thinking and and reading that I'm like, wow, maybe people shouldn't just shouldn't have access to this at all because it's just making them dumber. But, um, obviously I don't actually think that, but, um, yeah, it's just a double-edged sword, I think. Um, I think it's generally good that people are more skeptical, and I do see more of that. But you you see a lot of people who are very easily controlled in another yeah. way because they're just falling for anything. So um, it, it, I, it's it's a very fine balance. And most people that I know, while they're willing to hear different arguments, aren't willing to spend a lot of time actually truly critically thinking about it and coming to terms with what whatever they might find out from hearing something on pod on a podcast or reading something that's essentially communicated through a meme that they've read on the internet that they've decided is now their entire basis for their political ideology they they don't want to or have the time to or even care about thinking about what that actually means and turning that energy into something that could be politically useful
2: Americans, in my own personal experience too, and I'm, I'm p- painting with very broad brushes, um, just don't care about history either. Like, not the at memory. All. Not at the all. memory is goldfish length in this country. I um, bless my mother's heart, but she is like a very um, MSNBC liberal type who um, <laughs> loves the. And hates trump um which is good i mean that's definitely the better side to be on than like my mm-hmm. stark raving insane fox news dad sometimes <laughs> but um like she's all about the january 6th stuff and like every time i have dinner with her or i'm over visiting for one reason or another like that's all she can breathlessly talk about is the insurrection and all of this january 6th stuff because they tried to steal the election and Occasionally, like when I'm having a worst day, um, I will sometimes find myself asking, well, you know, they did steal the election in 2000 and you not really seem to care about it then <laughs> exactly. or still care about it now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm. you know what, guys? I'm missing those stark raving mad fox type Republicans. We don't see so much of them anymore. I want to go back to the time when Keith <laughs> Openman was the good guy, you know, I'm, I'm missing those days. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, we need, bill o'reilly needs to be let back on television
2: so this nation can all come together and just hate but, him again yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah living in texas it does get a little crazy you drive on a lot of highways here and you see a lot of people that just openly have uh firearms on display in their mega trucks and it can be a little intimidating after a
1: while yeah and that energy could come back in a big way
2: you can reach those people too because they all hate the government
1: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, but i think you're, you're putting your finger on a, a... Genuinely difficult problem in that we all want more people to get involved in these kind of ideas. But when they do, we're not necessarily happy with the way they do. And what are we asking of people? Because you're asking people, you know, there's an entire IQ spectrum in society, there's an entire spectrum of how much time people can put into things. And so you're asking people on all different places in that spectrum to jump into what is very difficult information. And yet, what you see a lot of them, Mm -hmm. you know, will go down the road of the flat earth movement or I mean, I recall when there was the financial crisis in 2008, and I like I'll just, to put my cards on the table. I'm, I'm quite sort of, uh, sort of libert- anarcho capitalist libertarian type. And I was looking at the growth of that movement at the time, thinking, oh, this is great. More people are, are Googling Mises than ever. More people are Googling about what the Federal Reserve does. This is like a re- And then I looked at the, the growth of the far right, and <laughs> it was just, I'd been looking at an anthill, right, compared to this towering skyscraper that had taken, taken over like parts of Europe with. With that kind of swing so that's Mm -hmm. kind of where people go Um, and i i don't think that's going to change massively i think you know not in our lifetime we're going to we're going to sort of see and live alongside and try and interact with that in some way but i think it's a genuine problem that is not easy to solve
2: i think a lot about if um like The U.S. government, you know, a year from now, like, maybe next November or so, decides they're finally just going to give it up and just, like, put all the JFK stuff out and are just like, you know what, you know, it was our bad, sorry, you know, maybe we can all move on now. And, like, I think about how long that would last in, like, the mainstream American news cycle. And, like, I, Eric, what do you think? Two days before that's out for...
0: Maybe. Especially if it was JFK stuff, yeah. Maybe... Uh, if, if the over-under were two days, I guess I might take the over, but uh, it, it's Even under- Even to go weeks. back
2: to the 9-11 stuff, I mean, Brandon put out the the documents, you know, earlier on this year, basically fingering Omar al-Bayoumi as being a Saudi spy, and I know you guys have talked about this on Dark Hour a lot, we've talked about this, we've, it's the heart of our show, why we started doing it. You know, this whole idea that the that the guy who's basically acting as the handler for al-Hazmi and Al-Madar once they move to America and are living in San Diego is this guy who clearly is working for Saudi intelligence. And like we get, we get basically the, we get solid proof from the fbi i mean still redacted but like it's all there um that gets made public you get like one story like in in the mainstream news it's it's out of the news cycle it doesn't even last a single day in the news cycle basically
0: yeah like you
2: can reach people with this stuff and like on an individual basis you can get people interested um but in terms of like i don't think we're going to change anything with this show to be honest with you besides getting a few more people like maybe maybe interested in the overall topic Mm -hmm. but i don't necessarily think that like you just—you're going to change people's. You can change people's mind on a mass level by just showing them the truth. Because I think for a lot of people, they either just don't care, or a lot of people just get uncomfortable too. They just don't like having their preconceived notions change because then they feel like they're—they've been a sucker the whole time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And they would
2: rather—they would rather just feel like they're right and not engage with it, as opposed to having to run the risk that, like I went through, you know, that a lot of what you took for granted as as being the truth was was really more
1: of a lie. You know, it's right. actually the central premise of Colonel Edwin house woodrow wilson's kind of confidant advisor his book philip drew administrator is that a, a washington politician gets caught on a recording device just being openly corrupt and this is played to the nation then and there's a revolution where hundreds of thousands of people march on washington and i always used to think after i read well, what would happen if that you know actually became a thing and my answer is nothing. Nothing would happen at all. Because <laughs> it, cause Look, it did know, the happen. Panama,
2: the Panama and Paradise Papers yeah. were
1: a great example of that, where we found out that
2: everyone from like Ronaldo to like every president, to that they all like hoard money, cheat taxes, keep things in like off fake bank accounts. And they blew that one lady up yeah. in the Maltese Island or the Maldives. And like that was the, that was the extent of it. Yeah.
1: Or, or yeah. Hunter Biden's laptop story just went, no, it got squashed when it just...
2: Exactly. I mean, you see his dick every week, which is funny, but like,
1: (laughs) how many Skittles can he fit
0: on there? Um, No, I mean, I think the only place uh, in which you see that kind of organization and energy might be what? South Korea. That's like the last time when I saw, you know, millions of people marching in protest back in 2016 or 17 when their president at the time was found to have links to or basically allowing their administration to be controlled by the Moonies. Which is such a crazy story. Yeah. Think. Oh, insane. And I'm I'm not very well educated on the story. Um, I haven't read a lot but it's about. Now it now led but... to the most successful political assassination possibly ever. Which is insane because, because now you see how many. What's the percentage of the population of Japan that now basically says like, oh, that was probably a net good actually. <laughs> like,
2: yeah, like over insane. half of them at this point.
0: Like that dude won. He <laughs> did. Yeah, he he did. And uh, you do have to ask the question whether he won because there was political corruption or whether he won because. He he was associating with koreans uh but they were all just
2: really impressed by his fallout 4 looking pipe gun yeah (laughs) i just respect
0: the craftsmanship yeah exactly that's (laughs) in true japanese fashion i think but uh, that kind of political organization just it's impossible to imagine it happening in america it's impossible even
2: with um even like after Trump was to happen, like that was where like most people probably in our, our lifetime so far got radicalized, like into being more politically active. And, and really all that ended up leading to is like, I don't know,
0: the women's March. Yeah.
2: More DSA membership, more sex pests to, to get kicked out of the DSA six months after joining, along with like all the cops. I mean, right.
0: Which, you know, not, not to like continue to feel like it, it's, um it, uh, it's too, you know, uh, believers in the immortal science against an anarcho-capitalist but I, I do think that a lot of this might come back to um be it empire be it capitalism whatever you want to look at it as um, I, of, of course i i understand that there are nuances there and there's differences in how you want to um in, interpret different things if you want to call it crony sure. capitalism yeah. whatever um but uh it it does seem like it's all kind of priced in uh look at the the women's marches in 2016 17 um like like what happened it's nothing more than just narcissistic ego stroking at the end of the day there's no organization to try to change this because um i mean i i've spent a lot of time i'm sure you know who dave smith is um listening to his show probably in like 2018 because i had never really heard any arguments like that before and and so i spent a lot of time listening to his show and uh um, uh, reading like Anatomy of the State and uh, reading a lot of anarcho-capitalist libertarian literature uh, because I was very interested in um, uh, understanding that viewpoint because it was so far from what I had ever known um, to be a viewpoint growing up. Um, my, my father worked for, uh, he, he was an, a civil engineer working for the Department of Transportation. Um, so obviously like neoliberal Democrats that just didn't ask questions. Um, I had never i had never really experienced any viewpoint like that um so I, I do understand uh that that viewpoint looking at empire from a libertarian sort of perspective um so whether or not it is just capitalism uh, re- regardless of what you want to uh, uh call it or if it is crony capitalism and, and empire there is this inherent ability to absorb political energy And if you're not going to rally around some kind of political organization, then what are you doing at the end of the day? If you're not actually trying to change policy and root out corruption and do something with the organized bodies under which you live, then what are you doing? You're just exercising your own ego and going home at the end of the day and, and watching TV.
2: You see, like, I mean, the George Floyd protest would be a great example of that,
0: where, like, it did
2: feel like for a week or so, like, everything could potentially be in, in, in like, in flux, you know, and I'll never forget watching the police station get burned down the first night, and then two weeks later, it's like, okay, what's next in the news cycle? Like, we're on to the next thing now.
0: Yeah, just Um, nothing happens.
2: And, I mean, a lot of that, you're right, Ark, is by design, though. Like, there are always those outlets to blow that steam off and then resume things back to the status quo, and... You know it's that idea of that you know there's and i think this is part of the reason why like everyone in america is so horny for a civil war to take place like everyone deep down really wants a civil war because that we finally feel like this would be the way to you know crack things up and finally be something different than what we have now but like as we saw like covid was supposed to be something like that you know it was supposed to be something like that when you, uh, russia invaded ukraine earlier right. this year but at the end of the day like capitalism is really good at maintaining that status quo because that's what the that's what skynet needs
0: yeah (laughs) yeah exactly i mean i would even push back against that and say that i don't even think this kind of uh as you say for a civil war is really this idea that people expect there to be change people don't want that they don't care about change i think that they want a civil war because they want to see their enemies suffer and that's kind of the nexus of american politics is just how can i get one up on the person that i view as the problem here
2: it's all we have left. No one has an idea to do anything different. It's just, how do I punish those that I don't like?
0: Right, and then how can I buy, you know, a, a dumb shirt that, that signifies that that's what I believe? Yeah,
1: that, that level of entrenchment, that is quite striking. I'm not sure it's quite as bad in Britain. I, I don't, there's probably, I don't walk the streets enough to really answer that question. I don't want my ear to the ground enough. Mm-hmm. But the level of being on a team and it's all, it, like, treating it like yeah. a game. Because if you're playing the game, that's fine. All that really matters is your side wins. or so you do break the other team's legs or something, or good fun but treating life like that is obviously a mistake and that, that's yeah
0: absolutely <laughs> and i do yeah. I do
1: think it's interesting yeah. the idea that certain protest movements come about as a way for people to blow off steam as and and are, mm-hmm. are engineered in that way so like i've seen these graphs of the the mentions of racism or the mentions of sexism in the new york times shooting up around the time of the financial crash when there's this energy about what kind of system are living in here it, it seems like we're being taken for a ride by the bankers and the politicians let's go get them let's have an occupy movement let's have a tea party movement and then mm-hmm. yeah. th- th- that is redirected inwards into black people are screwing white people who are screwing black people who are screwing men who are screwing women who are screwing the transgender crowd sure. and everyone gets fighting against everyone else And say, well, that, that's probably not <laughs> whether it's designed or whatever it seems to be a feature of the system <laughs> you know
0: it, I I think it is more a feature, it, as you say. I have a hard time necessarily believing that it is by design because I don't know if it's as, well, I don't know, what do you wanna call design? Is it you know, pre-planned or is the New York Times telling us to think this? Or do they have a finger on the pulse and say, oh, we're probably going to make a lot of money if we print this and uh, get a lot of interaction and a lot of traffic because we are taking advantage of the situation. And I think-
2: Because the whole thing works off outrage. The whole, all the money gets made off you being angry and clicking through to the next thing and getting angrier and staying on some kind of algorithm the whole time.
0: Right, right. Which is, I I know that I think you guys just did um, on, on your show, you and Adam, Um, just did, or on this show rather, um, just did, uh, uh, at least two episodes on Alex Jones and his trial. But, um, there's a lot of people love to say that Alex Jones is a CIA operative and he is, um, through some kind of monarch project, uh, influencing um, the, uh, the culture and uh, being the uh, purposeful poison pill, and I, I think maybe to a, a degree has he been This is the, gram- the, the Gramsci take, basically Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Um, Is he doing that, or is he somebody that's just actually smart enough to know that he can make a fuck ton of money if he just keeps <laughs> changing his, changing what he says ever so slightly. Look back in the, in the aughts. He wasn't talking like he was in 2012 about Sandy Hook he was, you know, talking about the Bush administration, and he was, you know, maybe, I guess, conservative, but he was certainly anti-establishment, and, and then all of a sudden he's pro-Trump, yeah. and he's, you know, uh, only talking about pedophile. He's going where the Well, you see is.
1: it with conspiracy theory and also with libertarians sometimes. There's a shift to the right. And a massive expansion in audience okay so alex jones yes yeah. and paul yeah. joseph watson who was a conspiracy theorist now doesn't want to know anything about conspiracy <laughs> like, to, Hell to yeah. evil muslims and, well, hang on paul how do you reconcile that with your 9-11 documentaries and your 7-7 bombings so but how you reconcile it is there's a shit ton of money to be made <laughs> talking <man>. yeah <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, yeah.
0: So might as well get that Knights of the knights of Malta money. <laughs> I mean, I, we always say if, if they want to give us the Ben Shapiro money, like
2: I will, we'll pivot this podcast to be about how, I don't know, the DSA to 9-11 or something, or
1: Indy5
0: we'll, to 9-11. If it's there's to two that different IS forces not. there. Exactly. There's, Peter Thiel. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Thiel, email us, please. There, there are the forces <laughs> from
1: the ground up there. Of just There's a lot of people who want right-wing reactionary talking points, and they'll sign up to your subscriptions, and they'll buy your Mega Man vitamin tablets if you're you're putting that content out, <laughs> but the, I think there is a top-down element like Sybil Edmonds the she did a presentation on this uh, years ago it's I don't think it's even available online anymore where she talks about after being an FBI whistleblower she went to set up her media organization and she went to a, a meeting with angel investors I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it's Amy Goodman of Democracy Now that took her to the the meeting and um, she mm-hmm. talked about how these ladies, like Californian ladies in rainbow colored skirts and sandals, uh, talked about what great work she was doing and how they were looking to invest in media and they were looking for the right group and what they thought the right group was kind of what Civil was doing, but maybe not critical of the Democratic Party right now. But just, and Sibel sure. <laughs> looked at this, but, well, they're offering this money and I'll get hooked in, right? Because then I'll start employing staff. I'll have all these overheads of the studio. I'll have rent to pay and I will be on the teat and I'll never get off it. And if, if they say, don't run a story, I or where it, it's not, not that anyone is telling anyone what to do. They're just saying, well, this is how I want to spend my money. Are you the person who's in line with that? So, and, and right. I think that that's the kind of top-down element of this control and who those people are and what their agenda is and whether they're mk ultra or slaves or whatever, well that's a, a deeper question but i think the the philosophical question almost i brought up against this so I'm, I'm actually doing a, a series at the minute uh, called reading david ike which for, for my sins right where I'm, I'm going through his books and trying to explain how a, a bbc sports commentator in the 1980s became the conspiracy theorist yep. we all know <sighs> and more with his shape shifting reptiles and a big part of that is uh, <laughs> mk ultra and People like Kathy O'Brien, yeah. the kind of extreme end of the. I went into hypnosis mm. in my thirties very... and I recovered all these memories of being sexually abused by George Bush and Bill Clinton. End and Ike meets so many of these people, he finds it overwhelming and says, "Okay, this must be true then." And mm. what I one of the a lot of questions. But one of the questions I bring up for me is: to what extent can deception exist without actually collapsing in itself? Okay, because if you had groups of people who were directly controlling the media. Say in a very overt fashion, like it's not a structure. It's not this is the way the system is kind of geared. It's that people are presenting a completely different face to the public than they are in their private lives. Well, you know, if you're going to Bohemian Grove and engaging in human sacrifice or something, well, you have to have waiters and waitresses there who presumably aren't part of the elite, okay? And they can go home and talk yeah. about this. So you've got to find a way. So, if you if there's a lot of deception, there has to be a point where you're interacting with someone who isn't in the inside circle. And then you've got to maintain it all the time. So I think a system like that must kind of collapse at some point. And therefore, of course, the deception. Of course, I think the the Clintons and the Bushes are basically crime families, like mafioso types. But I would think there must be a lot too. (laughs) In like, I don't think George is shape shifting into a reptile, reptile. Or to be more mundane (laughs) about it, I don't think that he's going behind doors of Bill Clinton and talking about how they're going to introduce the new world order through swapping the presidency back and forth between the families. I, I would guess, right? That because I just think there's a limit to deception yeah. before it topples over.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think and that's... I always, um,
2: yeah, and I always tell people like when nine eleven comes up that like my personal like while well, I said earlier I don't have a unified theory. Like one thing that I do know for sure is that there was not like a smoky, you know, back room in the in the White House where like the Bush cabinet sat down and were like, okay, on September eleventh, here's the plan. We're going to be ready with this, this, and this. Um, like Eric said earlier, I think a lot of it is more. It exists in more of a gray area you know yeah. like with jfk you're never going to find some document in some archive somewhere where like a bunch of people signed their names being like okay we agree killing jfk is the right call you know mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff you know these people are are smart enough to know to not put this stuff in writing they're not they're not they're not stupid they're, they don't want to get caught and a lot of times the most you have to go with is innuendo and you know reading between the lines with this kind of stuff and that's why like a lot of people kind of like bristle at the idea of you know even calling themselves conspiracy people or conspiracy theorists or what have you like i said earlier i'm not a huge fan of it myself but like when it comes to how like especially the ruling elite handle things like it is conspiracy at the end of the day like a lot of it is handled in ways that are intentionally obs intentionally made difficult to um what's what i'm looking for here they make it intentionally difficult to to follow the tracks and and connect those dots and and you know as cover
0: Um, but I mean, that's not even anything new. Like Adam Smith talks about that in The Wealth of Nations. Uh, Like, uh, I don't remember the exact quote off the top of my head, but it's something to the effect of um, all traders will sit down in a tavern and discuss how they can um, better uh, extract uh, profits from their workers. Um, I I think that Adam Smith personally doesn't make the uh, best – uh, uh, jumping off arguments after that, or the best solutions to counter that, but that it, that's not a disputed opinion. That is what he's saying, and then later he he jumps off of that fact to form his own opinions about uh you know the formation of capitalism in America in at that time, um, and as that pertains to the form uh, formulation of government in America at that time, um. But yeah, it, it, it's absolutely undisputed. Um, I, I think to some degree yeah it probably doesn't happen like the Saturday night live skit from the 80s where Reagan uh is <laughs> taking pictures with the girl scouts and all like lovely oh i don't know where i am and then he brings all the gentlemen back in and wh- he replaces the like the painting on the wall and it's a a world map and he's saying the red places are where we you know, ship arms and the green places are where we smuggle drugs and um I don't, <laughs> I don't i don't think it's quite like that but i do think it's certainly a lot of people who a um are willing to not ask questions because it's better for their own lives and for the uh, positions that they have professionally. Um, And B, it's a lot of people that um, wouldn't be in the position they are if they were somebody who would inherently want to question that. I think even Dave Smith has talked about this on his podcast before that you see that a lot in corporate media. The, The people who write for corporate media I don't think that they're necessarily working in some grand conspiracy. I just think that they're the type of people who would never get those jobs if they weren't
1: willing absolutely, to do that. Yeah. I think Chomsky right. said that. It might be to a BBC journalist um, saying that Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. He said, no one's ever told me to not say anything. It's so, well, respectfully, if if you were the kind of person need to be told that, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> exactly. And if anything exactly, I think yeah. from the well, what we call mockingbird, that's a bit of a loose term for from There was definitely a period in history where a lot of brown envelopes are going from the cia to the media organizations or there was just a an understanding between the editor of the new york times and alan dulles that they are definitely mm-hmm. batting for the same team and if alan gives a phone call he just wants been going in it doesn't go in and i'm not sure if maybe we've gone back to that a bit with the uh, the support the media gave to the democratic party to get trump out maybe we saw more of a kind of ideological realignment and maybe we saw it a bit with the the war on terror but i would say now It's gone to a place that's more sophisticated uh, from then, whether it's not that they feel they're on the same team. It's just that the media is full of people who would never think the question, who would never think to to go to those places.
2: I always think about ABC News and how in I I believe this was like the late 80s. They ran a lot of pieces that were very critical of like the Bush administration and the CIA. And um, William Casey, the famous story with Cap City is how William Casey got involved. Um, helped basically buy up ABC News after driving the stock price down by smearing them in the media, and then as soon as they basically took control, they got um, them to stop reporting on all that um, all that covert stuff and basically doing all these retractions. Um, like at the end of the day, capitalism again yeah. has a way to win for all that kind of stuff because like all the people that are. That have something to lose by this stuff coming out also have more than enough money to make it go away. Yeah. Um, you know, see every whistleblower book that gets every single copy gets bought up by the Department of Defense and just sits in a closet in the Pentagon somewhere because it's
0: the truth is too raw. <laughs> yeah. Tony Schafer's, for example, I believe the first edition of his book was almost completely bought out by uh, the DoD and burned. We talked about Robert Baer on the uh, Syriana
2: episode, and he ended up having an entire chapter cut out by the CIA before it could get published. Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. Yeah. And, and you certainly see it um, more overtly with popular media. Yeah, I think, right? Like um there there no one is even trying to hide that the US military told the producers what to put in Top Gun. Like it was a blatant. Oh all propaganda. the Marvel movies are
2: yeah, I mean all the Marvel movies are just commercials for Northrop Grumman and the DOD and, and JSOC, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and JSOC. I mean we do, we talk about that on Zero Dark Thirty, yeah. A truly evil film. Of, right. And so like the CIA literally wrote the script for that to the extent where like they got in trouble for basically like leaving Hollywood producers around classified material at Langley. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like that's that's not really hidden. And why, by the way, because they were all getting taken
2: out on expensive dinners and and being given like watches and and expensive dresses. And in certain people's cases, like, again, like all these movie producers are more than happy Mm -hmm. to wine and dine and and pay these people um, who, by the way, are technically employees of the government. And um, yeah, I mean, never overlooking a chance to make a profit for themselves. That's the the CIA way, be it cocaine or uh,
0: movies. (laughs) Yeah, and Richard, you said that maybe it has gotten more sophisticated. Maybe that is the more sophisticated way of doing it. Because generally, at least speaking for Americans, they will just watch Zero Dark Thirty and, and decide, oh well, you, uh, based on based on real events is good enough for me. That's, That's all you happened. need
1: based on true events. Yeah, exactly.
0: They're going to watch that movie and decide that this is the reality.
1: In well, which you can I see that The Looming Tower. Kind of was a Netflix series or whatever, whatever it was on. You... Oh, a Hulu, Hulu series, series yeah, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's subtle, and the the agency doesn't come out of it shining. But there are like subtle misrepresentations that. Give the cia a kind of clean bill i mean just one example would be there's a composite character of jen matthews and alfreda bukowski and, and some of the women in alexation yep um crying after after the, the attack happened. <laughs> right? and what yep. um i think it's um uh oh the, the greek fellow john kiriaku uh, and yeah. i think he's the one that like, there were no tears shed in there there was just complete self-righteousness that day of like this wasn't our fault at all right it's interesting that like, <laughs> yeah, yeah of course he, he commented on that and then they portrayed it the different way. That's just one of, of many little subtle things that we'll
2: have to have you on, Richard. We're gonna do Looming Tower, hopefully one day. The the T V show we'll try to Great. get a yeah, little two, to Yeah, it. that is a fun show yeah. to be honest with you. So it. look what's coming
1: yeah. up? Um what's coming up in the immediate future on the It's gonna be nine eleven again, before you know it, it comes every year.
0: Yeah, our decorations <laughs> are up. <laughs> uh we just um we put out yesterday uh the first in at least two or three episodes that we'll do on Zacharias Massawi. We kind of talked about his early beginnings from um, a child growing up in France to uh, basically up to the day of his arrest on August 16, 2001. And we uh, we plan to go beyond that and really go into Harry Samet's story and what happened at uh, the FBI Radical Fundamentalist Unit and Minneapolis uh, FBI field offices. And uh, from there, uh, we have a couple projects that we're thinking about. We mentioned the SK Bane episode that we'd like to do around Halloween. I, I believe uh, we are planning to collaborate with Adam Fitzgerald again um, for an episode that soon. will release around 9-11. Um, I-, I don't know, Ben, if you want to tell what uh, we're thinking of doing there. It's I think it'll be a good episode
2: yeah we're planning on doing um, a tribute episode of John wow, Neil, right, actually okay. um seeing as how it's a story that like i found completely unbelievable um from reading looming tower the book mm-hmm. and um he's a guy that doesn't get enough credit um every Absolutely. year people should be talking about him and um yeah that's one that is worth telling and um also stay tuned because we want to get to israel before the end of the year too uh, yeah. we're gonna get the show immediately canceled because we're gonna talk about the shame right. memo yeah, for... probably, probably will. <laughs> A month and a half, and then a bunch of pit crew avi's on, on Twitter are going to get me fired from just, my job. Just for the, yeah, we're going
0: to have a bunch of Indian the, dudes on uh, Twitter just screaming at just us. Just for the listeners,
1: John O'Neill was the head of the FBI's, uh, what's the I-49 yes. squad? The te- yeah, terrorist I-49. Tribe, yep. FBI yep. Looking at Bin Laden, uh, resigns, takes a job in the Twin Towers, and dies on 9-11. So... That mm-hmm.
2: became head of security at the World Trade Center
1: on August 26th. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. incredible story. Incredible. Okay, gentlemen, let's get out of here. Thank you very much. Indeed, there's been. Oh, yes. Thank you so much yeah, for having us so It was so, so much fun Amy doing, doing this. Yeah, give me a shout. So great. Thank you.